Thank you for joining us today. We're looking in God's Word in Matthew chapter 4, and in just a moment we're going to go into that passage regarding the three temptations of Jesus. Before we do, let me give you a couple of quick words about August the 23rd. I'm looking at this room, and uh, there's all but a few people in here. But on that day, if the Lord so leads in your life, we'd love to have you come and join us. 9 o'clock worship service, 11.15 worship service, and 4 o'clock worship service. And listen carefully. want to let you know we have taken every precaution to make sure your safety is the utmost importance between, before the service and between services. Our maintenance crew will be going through here. We have purchased sprayers with disinfectant. Every seat in this worship center will be sprayed between services. We have hand sanitizers that will be outside. We have bathroom monitors to make sure everything is good. Doorknobs are clean and things are ready to go. We're dismissing you from the back forward so we're able to cut down on any, uh, or should I say positively, ensuring social distancing as you leave the building. But we're looking forward to it. We need to be back together and see faces even though we can't come up and hug and shake hands and do a high five. We need to look and see those faces, and I'm blessed that we're able to do that. So thank you in advance for your consideration to come out to one of those services. Our 4 o'clock service is primarily geared for seniors, and we know some of you will watch for a week or two to see how things go, but we're going to go forward and get things rolling here. And even this Sunday, the 16th, as I've already looked at the weather, it looks like there's great potential for rain on that morning, 60 to 80% they're showing right now, so 80% by 10 o'clock. So um, there's a strong possibility we'll not be having that parking lot service on Sunday, and that's what impacts us being out in the parking lot. There is a uh, shelf life to meeting outside. So if you're hearing this and it's raining out there, uh, God controls the weather. If it's sunny and we have to call it early, it's because we made our best call. We do have uh, paid help that come in with their equipment and set all that up, and they need notice before they do that. Otherwise, we have to pay for that, and we don't want to use God's resources in a way that is wasteful. So thank you in advance. Let's get into God's Word today. Jesus' model for overcoming temptation. We'll begin in Matthew 4, 5. Word of God says, then the devil took him to the holy city. Imagine. And he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, if you remember last week, there were some things going on there. Temptation number one, the devil comes to Jesus and tempts him for what Jesus could do for himself. Make bread, Jesus, Do something for yourself. That's the temptation. We talked some about that last week. Today, in the second temptation, the devil comes at him with the dynamic of what the father ought to do for Jesus. So he comes at a completely different angle. It's subtle as you read it, but it's really not subtle. It's very important. What can the father or ought the father do for you? Jesus. And we'll all find ourselves in these temptations in different dynamics. We'll find ourselves in them. What can you do for yourself? Today, 
what the Father ought to do for you, Jesus. So he has Jesus stand on the highest point of the temple. Imagine that. And this temple, don't forget, is on an approximately a 29 to 30 acre site. It's one of the wonders of the world. And there is Jesus on top of that. Now, even during the week, lots of people coming, foreigners, people that live there, all on these grounds. And he has them stand there. Why there? There was other high places he could have taken him. Why there? Why the temple? Let's look at that. Because in looking at scripture, we always have to ask who, what, when, why, where, uh, who, all those questions. It's part of hermeneutics. It's part of biblical interpretation. Why there when there's other places? Why the highest point there? And I have some thoughts on that. Perhaps you do too. And my thoughts revolve around something that's very important. Biblically-based local churches are of special interest, special interest to the great deceiver. Watch out for that. Why there? Because there's people who are worshipers that are there. And the Word of God tells us that we are to guard the fellowship. And we'll talk in a little bit about the significance of Jesus if he did listen to the devil at that point and jump or fall from that highest point. But let's go to Matthew 4, 6 now and look at some of the responses taking place. The devil says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. There's some really important things to note from this. The devil's actually quoting scripture here. And he first of all questions if you are the son of God. Now, all through our world, we're used to that question, aren't we? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is he really deity? Who is Jesus? But this is asked in such a way that Jesus is supposed to prove himself to the devil. The devil full well knows he's the Son of God, but he's coming in to tempt him. Listen carefully. You, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are a child of God. God has adopted you into his family. Don't you dare listen to the lie of the devil. Don't let him say, if you're a child of God, you are a child of God. Well, sometimes, pastor, I don't feel it. That's irrelevant. You are. It's not a matter of you holding on to God. It's God holding on to you. You're a child of God. He'll come at you. If you are a child of God, why doesn't God heal you? Why didn't God give you that job? Why didn't God give you that boyfriend or girlfriend? Why didn't God fix this? You're a child of God, and no one loves you like God does. You see, today's message revolves around a very significant point. And you have to get this point throughout this message. God is not to be tested. God is to be trusted. So as we go through this, we're going to see how God is just laying out a perfect thing for us to understand how to resist temptation. If you are the son of God. Prove your deity by the spectacular. Now, let me say this. Jesus could have jumped off that building 
and not even have an angel uh, save him from it. He could have done that, saved himself from it. Prove your deity by the spectacular. Throw yourself down. Now, what is hidden in all of this? Well, once again, I said earlier, why the temple? Why the highest point in the temple? Well, first of all, it's quite visible, isn't it? When you're up there and you can see someone up on this high point. Why? Well, the temptation comes in this way. Jesus attract attention by doing an unbelievable feat. Gee, it's very easy, Jesus. The angels will come. They will rescue you. Uh, You can attract attention to all those people there, and you can attract attention by having this unbelievable feat pass right before the people's eyes. So Jesus is tempted to do the spectacular. The worshipers at the temple would find this incredible event, something that would make its way throughout all Jerusalem and Israel and accept and proclaim Jesus as their Messiah. Imagine if that happened. There it is. They're watching up there. Jesus jumps off or is pushed off or jumps himself. And the devil yells and brings all the attention to that as he's falling and the angels rescue him. Jesus, they'll proclaim you as the Messiah by doing this spectacular. You see, it's so subtle because you can think in your mind, well, that would have been something great. They would have seen that. Listen carefully. Jesus' mission on this earth was not to come and do the spectacular in that way. And we're going to look at two parts of the wrong reasoning behind this whole thing, behind what the devil is trying to do here. Jesus' mission was to go to a cross. Jesus' mission was to pay for the sins of this world, not to fall from the temple. But the devil is crafty. He's looking for ways to deceive. He's looking for ways to find a different kind of Jesus, just like we have in our world. Do the spectacular. First of all, God's not to be tested. He's to be trusted. Let's look at the first point about this reasoning. God wants us to put our full trust in him, period, in his word. He's given us his word, and we show that we believe in his word, and we put our trust in him, and we go by what he says, not our feelings, not political correctness, not the other million things, but we put our faith and trust in his word. Secondly, God's promises are not to be presumed upon or taken advantage or misused. The devil knows how to do all three of those things. He can make us presume upon what God has said. Didn't God say, supply all my needs? Well, why do I need this or why do I have that? Dear friend, either God's right or you're right. And you know who I'm going with? I'm going with God. God will supply all your needs. You say, well, I didn't get this. Then you didn't need it. You see, many times we confuse wants and needs But God will do that. We can't presume upon God's promises and think I should have this or have that. Didn't David have all of that? Didn't Solomon have that? Wasn't Paul like this? Well, listen, none of us are those people. We're who we are. We can take advantage of God's promises. God, you said if I can pray, uh, you will answer and give me all that I wish. Doesn't the book of John talk about that? It does. It does if you pray in Jesus' name and you pray in the Father's will. That's what's important. 
God's word is misused. And God's not some magic lantern at our beck and call. We're to be at his call to do what he's commanded, what he's asked us. And we should be blessed that we can even serve a king of kings. Amen? We should be blessed to do that. God wants us to believe in him. You know why? Because we love him. Not because of events. Not because of happenings. He wants us to believe in him because we love him. You see, God's got everything else wants us to show our love. He says, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. In other words, you'll trust me. Even when you're feeling, say, I don't want to keep that commandment. Or that didn't seem right for me. That doesn't seem fair. I tell you something about life. You have the wrong understanding of life if you think life is, quote, unquote, fair. And probably we've all been treated way more fairly than we ever deserve Just look around. In fact, we even had today, right in this very room, a celebration of life service for a four-year-old little boy. The last time I saw him was downstairs before all the lockdowns happened. Fair. We define fair so subjectively, don't we? Don't we? We look at the finest example of something and say, why don't I have that? When God says, I'm taking care of you, just like he said to Peter. What is that to you? When Peter asked about John, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, mind your own business. You've got enough to take care of. Don't question what I'm doing because it seems unfair to you. God wants us to believe in him because we love him. Not because of what we got or an event or a happening. God is not to be tested. God is to be trusted. Isaiah 43.10, the word of God says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Now, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses actually use this verse as part of their, the reasoning for their name. You are my witnesses. We don't do it for that reason, but they do. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may, two things, three things, so you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. So you may know and believe me and understand that I am. God wants us to know him, to believe him and understand him as much as we can from the word of God. God is to be trusted, not to be tested. That you'll know and believe in me. Matthew 4, 6, as we continue to look at that, it says, For it is written, Satan is smart. He may be a deceiver. He is the Lord of the flies, according to the word of God. He's a slanderer, but he's not stupid. He's shrewd, and he's a schemer, and he knows me, and he knows you. He knows our strengths, our weaknesses, our pitfalls, and he knows where to attack. So he uses scripture How many people have gotten the wrong understanding of Scripture and started cults, gotten off on the wrong things because of Scripture, not taking it properly? For it is written, Satan sought to make his temptation more persuasive by quoting Scripture. How do you think cults start? How do you think people get off base with the Word of God and believing that it's God's will that everyone necessarily would be rich or healed instantaneously. Sometimes God allows people to go through suffering and hurt. 
Can God heal? Of course I believe God can do the miraculous. Of course. I've seen some of those miracles over the course of my ministry. Many times God chooses to be with us in the valleys of life. You see, the world looks at us, and if we had everything, if we were healed every time we had an ailment, if we had piles of money falling down from heaven, the slander to God would be, they only serve you because of what they get, because of the events and because of the happenings. But how are you when things aren't going well? Do you still love and believe in God? God is not to be tested. God's to be trusted. And the opportunity to trust him exists in those times when we have some pain, some disillusionment, some frustration. These are the times we go to God, not to the feelings. Not to say, God, where are you? God is there. For it is written. He attempts to use his crafty temptation in a very persuasive way. Because the word of God does say that. It says it in Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Look at the verse. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That has nothing to do with Satan himself transporting Jesus to the top, the highest point of the temple and telling him to jump off and do the spectacular. Nothing at all to do with that, but that's the devil. That is the devil. He's slick, isn't he? And the moment we think I'm beyond, the devil could never tempt me. Dear friend, the devil already has you. Stay on your guard. He's looking. He wants you to fail. And he's proficient. If anyone is proficient at perverting Scripture and misusing Scripture, it is Satan. What's amazing to me is he knows Scripture, doesn't he? He quotes it. He knows Scripture and knows how to misuse Scripture. How do you think so many cults have got started? You see, if you make Jesus anything other than the Jesus found in the Bible, Satan doesn't care how you do it. Make him a good man. Make him a prophet. Make him a God, not the God, not equal to Jehovah. Make him something else and Satan's happy. That's how, that's the misuse of Scripture. Or totally disregarding Scripture, the the enemy's totally happy there. But if he can trap people in a heavenly way to go to hell, in religions and in cults, giving them some way to earn their own way through Scripture or through their own means, then he's got them. But he's proficient at it. Look at this next slide we have here in Genesis 3.1. It tells us from the very start, From the very start in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, humanity has been on the earth for a short time, as far as we can tell. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see the repetition of what's happening over and over again through history that has escalated in this day and time that you and I live in? Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say he created us in a certain gender and that's how, that's who we are? Did God really say that? Did God really say it's a sin if you cohabitate? Did God really say it's a sin to use this word or act in this way? Did he say that? You and I are up against that. 
Did he really say it? I'm asking you. Did he really say it? Does God say what he means and means what he says? Of course he does. It's not being ugly. It's not hate language. We just believe God's word. We love all people. But we believe God because he is God, because he's the creator of the universe, has every right to tell us how relationships should exist. So, of course, we go with God that may end up being our persecutor, probably will. But it's still true. And anytime you have to decide between what you're going with, the world's way, politically correct way, or God's way, dear friend, always stay with God's way. God meant what he said. Did God really say that? Yes, he did. But Satan does seek to create doubt. Well, look, these other people are good people. They're nice people. Why why would we have an issue with them? I don't have an issue with people. I have an issue when people take God's word and misuse it. And many churches today misuse it by deciding they've caved in to political correctness in the sense they're going to go by the world standards rather than God's standards. And the world finds that ugly. They, 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 you're intolerant. What's wrong with you? The devil is having a heyday with it. And think about this. God created us the way we are, and the devil, when he goes before God, facing the issue of Job, when God says, have you considered him? He says, Job only serves you for what he has. Take it away. God may take some things away from us. I don't know. Our freedom? I don't know. I hope not. I pray not. I don't want that. But I want us to be able to stand on a truth no matter what. Stand on truth because that's what's going to abide forever. Governments come, governments go. The word of God abides how long? Forever. And we're going to listen to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if Jesus yielded to this temptation, failure would have occurred in at least two areas. Because Jesus could have fallen from that. He could have subscribed to that technically and listened to the devil himself. Because that perverter and that liar. But God's never to be tested. God is to be trusted. And let's look at some of the ways that there would have been failure in at least two areas. First of all, Jesus would have abused the Father's will and ignored what the Father really wanted. The father did not want to take the kingdom by this spectacular way where people would just take Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus was to go to the cross. That was Jesus's mission. Not to get people to gravitate around him and pick him up on his shoulders and carry him in and say, he's the Messiah. We believe in him. Why? Because it avoids the biggest issue in all of humanity. The biggest issue facing humanity is the sin problem. What do we do with it? And people dance all around it. Religions dance all around it or make something different out of it. But the problem is heaven's a perfect place. It's going to be a perfect place. No sin can enter heaven. and Only Jesus could have taken our sins and paid the complete price for those on the cross. He took our death. He suffered, bled, and died and rose three days later. It's the sin problem. And Jesus would have abused the Father's will because he could have ushered in the kingdom with the spectacular. Have you ever wondered why Jesus says after he heals someone, don't tell anyone? Have you ever wondered why? Because in our, in our mind, it seems counterintuitive. You would think Jesus would say, go tell everyone what I did. But the reason he doesn't is because he doesn't want to be the Messiah 
that's known as the make food Messiah, i.e. the first temptation, or the Messiah that's the spectacular, do the unbelievable and the spectacular, he's the Messiah that's going to wear the crown of thorns and go to the cross. That's the Messiah he's going to be. He's going to be, he came to be the suffering servant. He will come one day and do the spectacular in front of all when he appears again. But that was not the role of Jesus. It was not the goal of Jesus. It was not the mission of Jesus. And the Father sent him on this goal, on this mission, to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And Jesus had the nobility to deal with all the slander, all the lies, all the punishment, all the way through his ministry, to still do what the Father called him to do. Jesus teaches us the Father's not to be tested, the Father's to be trusted, period. What a beautiful thing. Now, when we look at this passage in Matthew 6, 9, and 10, it's fundamental to the biblical Christian faith. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not Joe's will, not your will, not your will, not your will. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will was to take take sinners and give them a righteousness that only could be given through him. That was the Father's will. Jesus taught those, that very prayer in Matthew 6 because so many prayers were put up and are back then and today that have to do with my will, my thing. That's why Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, not as a name and claimant, when you're asking in his name, you're asking the name of Jesus, the Messiah, God that presupposes you understand he's God, you understand he's omniscient, that he knows everything, and you're asking him for his will, not your will. We can say, God, I would like this if that's your will. But we don't command God to do something because we want it. It's his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not ours. So he would have violated what the Father had wanted. Secondly, Jesus would have centered the people's attention on a spectacular event. And it would have been spectacular. But there was way more of a spectacular event that has lasted all of these, well, hundreds and thousands of years. Cross is the most spectacular event that has ever taken place other than the tomb that Jesus came out of. Christ's mission is to focus people's attention on faith. Why? Because God is not to be tested. God is to be trusted. That was the mission of Jesus Christ. Focus the people's attention on that, not on did you see what Jesus did? And, of course, when you do one spectacular thing, what's the next thing he'll do? Why do you think Jesus got followed after he did the feeding of the 5,000 all the way across the lake? People found a great way to get free food. Jesus could have continued doing that and had people gravitate to him. And and he did lots of healing and miraculous and spectacular things. But it was never to take the kingdom that way. He went to the cross so he could deliver the kingdom to us. And his mission and focus is what we're about today. It says in Hebrews 10, 22 and 23, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full in full, in full assurance of faith. 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. You either believe it or you don't. God is faithful. And that's why I can repeat time and time again from this pulpit, God is not to be tested. God is to be trusted. And Jesus shows that. He demonstrates it and shows us exactly what that's about. And see, beyond that, you say, well, it would have been cool to see something spectacular like that. Imagine if we were in the temple, in the courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, and saw Jesus falling, his angels come, and they just pick him up. And that would have been cool to see. Humans don't, you know, as far as the heavens are above the earth, God says, so are my ways above your ways. It's just what we gravitate to, but I want you to think about something. We are already surrounded by the spectacular. I was looking at a hummingbird a couple of days ago. And they're magnificent, aren't they? Some of you have seen them this summer. You have hummingbird feeders out. Could you design one of those things? Could you make a hummingbird? Could you make an albatross with a 10-foot wingspan to have a bone weight of, of around four ounces? Could you make some of the things that trees do in, in interlocking your roots and synergy to feed one another, having some trees on this earth 2,000 years old? Could you make the sunrise and sunset? Could you plan something where the earth is tilted in just a perfect way to where our climate is conducive to human life? We have enough oxygen. We have enough trees to oxygenate things. Could you design lungs? I was talking with someone that does surgery even today, earlier today. They talked about putting someone's arm back together that had been mutated and part of it cut off in a saw and how intricate it is in that 11 and a half hour surgery to try and reconnect nerves and arteries and veins. And this, this doctor said, how can anyone not believe there's a God? It's so intricate. We are surrounded with the spectacular but because we get to witness it every day. It almost becomes mundane. We forget it didn't just get there. We're surrounded with spectacular things just looking at our hands, our eyes that can see the things all around us. We already are surrounded with the spectacular. And because of our hearts sometimes, we want even more. But just keep looking at it and say, wow, our God, my heavenly Father created that. He hung that uh, star a million times bigger than the earth called the sun. He has us rotating perfectly. 1,000 miles an hour, 60,000 miles an hour in an orbit around the sun, making a perfect second, minute, hour, day, week, month, year, decade, century, millennium. Made a perfect clock. We're trying to make a clock like that. We're surrounded in the spectacular that God said. Now look, in Romans 1.20, this is why God could say. When people say, you know, if we just would see the spectacular, maybe we'd believe in God. Romans 1.20 says this, for since the creation of the world. So what does that mean? It means since the creation of the world. Something that's visible, something that's empirical evidence. God's invisible qualities. Which ones? His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Do you see them? 
Appreciate them every day. If you have children or grandchildren, show them and show them a flower. Say, look, that started with a little seed and it all unfolded and grew up into this flower. It unfolds from this little bud into a flower. Could you do that? Something that simple, just one thing. Make that rosebud come out to make a beautiful rose and unfold it perfectly. God's done it. His invisible quality, his eternal power, because it took power to speak something into existence as large as, as this earth is, as our solar system is, as our galaxy is, as our universe is. We don't know the power of God. And many times during the day when we're looking at it, we have to confess and say, God, we don't know just how powerful you are because our minds cannot contain it. But you must be an awesome God, a God to be feared that by your power, you spoke it and it happened. And it says his eternal power and his divine nature, his divine nature Because God even created animals to be able to take care of themselves. Look how they do it. You ever wondered how the bird gets back to its nest when it's so far away? It finds the right place. It gets on the branch, it doesn't fall. You ever wonder how bees go back to the hive? they're, They're so far away, but they do it. You ever wondered how the golden plover goes from the Alaskan tundra to Hawaii without ever having been there? Not following anyone? God made it as such. We are surrounded with the spectacular. It says his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, what? From what has been made. What has been made is one word in Greek, poema. It's a poem. It's where we get our English word poem from. From the poem that's unfolding before us. Sunrise, sunsets, minutes, hours, days, nature, everything working together so that men are what? Without excuse. You see, God has shown us the spectacular. People choose to not believe it. And I submit to you, it's more spectacular to look and see what God has created. And they saw it even more in that day. They were more dependent on nature and rain and clouds and climate than we ever are now. They had to have it to survive. And they could see it then, but they wanted more. They wanted more. People today want more. What does Jesus answer? When he has this come before him, he's at the temple site. The people are down there. He can get the kingdom through the spectacular just by listening to Satan take scripture out of context. Never intended to be that way. In Matthew 4, 7, it says, Jesus answered him, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't pull out some scripture and you're going to test God. God passed every test that ever could be passed. God's never to be tested. He's to be trusted, period. Here, there's good news for us believers. Good news. Satan could not push Jesus off the highest point of the temple. And Satan cannot push believers into sin. So you have to have buy-in. We only get pushed into sin and gravitate to the temptation when we cooperate with the devil. He's looking for us to cooperate. He's looking for Jesus to cooperate, period. So there's great news for us. He He couldn't push Jesus off, and he can't make you sin. So what's it all about? God wants us to be more stirred to obey him 
more than we are stirred to yield to temptation because all the spectacular you see has been brought about by the Heavenly Father. You may have noticed as we have been filming this, I've got a pair of skis back here. I'm going to stand them up so you can get an idea of their size. They're eight feet long. They're over 100 years old. We've got a couple of skiers in here. Van's a skier over there. You ever skiing anything like this? He's laughing and said, no. They're unbelievable. They have a little strap on them. And somehow, some way, people over 100 years ago would put these on their feet and go down a, go down a hill. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Why do I have these here today? I have a, a story that I found fascinating years ago. Some of you, like me, enjoy watching the Olympics. And in 1988, a show came on before the Olympics came on. They were doing different highlights of people doing these spectacular things. And one of the things they were showing uh, in the slalom race, have you ever seen the slalom racers? They, they're going incredibly fast on their skis, and they go between all the gates, don't they, Van? You have to jut in and out of all those different gates so that you can, because if you miss a gate, you're disqualified. You, you lose. And so they're showing about the slalom racing and all that. And then they, here's the incredible part. They have blind skiers, blind skiers that are partnered with a sighted skier. And these sighted skiers are showing these blind skiers how to navigate a slalom course. And it's amazing. Think about this. They're blind. They don't, it's hard enough to do when you're seeing. So what they do, and it was wonderful to get to the end of this program because at the end of the program, you see what happens. Each sighted skier paired with a blind skier would give the command as they're going down. And they're going fast. They're not doing some little baby thing at a half mile an hour. They're flying down this thing. And when they get toward the gate, they had taught them how to listen to the command. Left, and they'd make the left. Right, and they'd make the right. And so on and so forth until those blind skiers actually finished the course. And it's incredible because I thought about it and I just closed my eyes when that was going on. I remember back then thinking, how hard was that? I thought their success depended on what? on following the directions from the sighted skiers. It was either trust or catastrophe. That was the only other option, period. Listen to the sighted skiers, and they did, and they successfully navigated the course. Why is that important? Because only the truly sighted God can lead your life to get you down the course of life safely, soundly, and with success. And I pray that as God has spoken truth into your life from the second temptation, that you'll listen to the only one that is cited already through your whole future that will take care of you. God's not to be tested. God's to be trusted. Trust him with all that you have. God bless you and thank you for joining us today.